Every life needs a purpose to which it can give the energies of its mind and the enthusiasm of its heart. Hello all, and welcome to A Victorious Life is Yours. There is a place here reserved just for you to be inspired, uplifted, encouraged, and strengthened in your daily walk of life in every area of your life, spirit, mind, and body. I'm Renee Marie Jones, your host, and I love and live to empower people to make a difference in their own lives as well as everyone that they come into contact with. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's get started, Victorious Ones. Some years ago, I did a study to take a look at what the last seven days of Jesus' life on earth were like. I wanted to try to visualize, perhaps even experience for a moment, and walk the path that his feet walked on the road to Calvary, his destination, and the purpose for which he was born. So, for the next eight days, we're going to take each day and count down to Calvary. Hello all and a happy Good Friday to you. We are uh, welcoming you back to our continued journey as we're looking at Countdown to Calvary. Uh, we started this journey back on Sunday, which was Palm Sunday. And let's kind of bring everything up to speed. So we started out on Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, and that was with the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. He was met with a great multitude of people who cheered him on and gave him the accolades and the honor, honor that is due a king that's coming to town after victory riding on a donkey. And one of the things that I noted was that a donkey is risen or usually ridden by a king who is victorious. Interesting that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey before the battle had been fought. But we know that from the foundations of the world and even before time began in eternity, the battle had already been won. Jesus was already declared a victorious king. So the uh, elders and the chief priests, the religious leaders of that time and day were very indignant and very upset because of the welcome parade that was given Jesus as the crowd cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which was the highest praise that could be given to an individual. The leaders, the Christian leaders were indignant about this. They, they didn't care for that. And then even later on, on Sunday, Jesus, as he's going into Jerusalem, on his way into the temple, which was his custom and what he usually does to teach, he saw uh, things that were going on in the temple that were distasteful to him. He saw the money changers exchanging money, selling items, preparing for Passover. And Jesus got indignant himself and began to turn over the tables and he made a, a whip out of cords and began to uh, vlog people as they were trying to scatter and get out of the way. Of course, all of this was under the eyesight of, again, the chief priests, the elders, the leaders, and they begin to wonder who is this person and what gives him the right. We move on from Sunday to Monday, 
Jesus retires in Bethany, which is where the uh, the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, he often retired there. And on his way back to Jerusalem uh, on Monday, he sees a fig tree that was not bearing any fruit and he was hungry. And of course he wanted some fruit off of that tree, but he, he cursed the tree. And the disciples who were with him, they did not uh, let that go and they wondered about that. But Jesus gave them a lesson about faith and the importance of how if you have faith and if you believe you can speak things into existence, you can speak what the word of God has to say and God will back your word up and he will agree with your word that there's no obstacle that you cannot speak to that cannot change through and by the power of God. So that was on Monday. Tuesday, as Jesus goes back into the temple, he goes into face to face with controversial questions that were being asked by the religious leaders of the day. So he had the Sadducees who were questioning him about the resurrection from the dead. They did not believe in life after death, but they posed questions to him about resurrection of the dead. The other religious group, the Pharisees and the Herodians who were arch rivals um, towards one another, became comrades in their quest to try to trick Jesus as they asked him questions about the responsibility of civilians as it relates to government and who should pay taxes and how they should pay taxes. And then Jesus also asked questions from the scribes who were the uh, also religious leaders who were in charge of writing up contracts and documents. They were very well versed in the law, in the Mosaic law. But Jesus also got a chance to answer questions from his disciples and he gave a great teaching on the end time, the second coming and the catching away or the rapture of the church. So Wednesday takes us into or took us into the eve of Passover. Passover started on Wednesday at six o'clock, uh, which was uh, interesting because Several things happened that stood out on that day. There was an anointing that took place as Jesus sat at dinner with friends and Mar Mary comes in with an alabaster box of very expensive oil and she anoints Jesus with the oil, projecting and prophesying in actions about what was to come as she was preparing Jesus for the future burial. Of course, the fragrant or the flagrant use of oil that was so expensive was not received very well by those who were witnessing all of this. But Jesus, again, teaching moment, let the people know that what she was doing, she was doing in honor of him and that her action would follow her throughout the years to come. And we today have that story. So on the other side of the coin of adoration, and gratitude for Jesus was the betrayal. It was also at this time that Jesus and his disciples were together and the motion of plotting and scheming against Jesus was put into play by Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples. Thursday, we uh, looked at blood, sweat, and tears, the Passover, 
we talked about the Passover and how um, it was celebrated by the Jews in um, remembrance of what happened in the book of Exodus when God freed his people from 400 years of slavery of the miraculous deliverance of placing blood over the doorposts and the lentils of the Jewish people and the death angel passed over their homes but the firstborn children of the Egyptians were slain and Passover having that significance even as we are now in the the time of Passover this week uh, significance to us today as Christians because it was the blood of Jesus that was applied to your life and my life that allowed and caused the judgment of God and the penalty of sin which is death to pass over us so we are covered over by the blood of Jesus so throughout each day Jesus's enemies um, truly became more and more hostile uh, there were plots and plans and schemes to bring about his demise, which brings us to today. And we are going to take a look at, at what I consider to be the crux or the climax of this Holy Week. And I have entitled it the Kangaroo Trials. The uh, trial of Jesus that resulted in him being nailed to the cross is probably the most classic example of unfair and unfair and illegal rush to condemn Jesus to death. He never committed a crime, yet he was declared guilty. And tragically, the alleged crimes that they said that he committed would result in the most painful form of capital punishment ever devised death for a capital offense during the first century uh, Roman domination was by crucifixion. But in spite of that, in spite of man's plan, there was a, a, a bright side looking at it from the perspective of God. Now, when we look at every event and everything that happened, all the altercations that Jesus experienced, all the hostility, the betrayal from his uh, own disciples and the hostility towards him from the religious sect of groups. All of this was predetermined and was all part of God's plan. Nothing that happened happened just by virtue of what man's decisions were. God had his hands all into this according to from the foundations of the earth. This was what God's plan was. So everything that Jesus did, he did it for you and he did it for me and he did it willingly. And I want us to keep that in mind as we continue on looking. So we're going to look at what I call today the kangaroo trials. Why kangaroo? What does that mean? Uh, kangaroo court. When we talk about kangaroo court, uh, the concept of kangaroo court dates back to the early 19th century. And it traces its roots back to or origin back to the time when uh, judges went from place to place on the United States frontier. And these roving judges were paid based on how many trials that they conducted. And sometimes their salary depended on the fines that the defendants that they convicted had to pay. And so the term kangaroo comes from if you can just picture these judges hopping from place to place. And they were guided less by concern for justice than by the desire to just have and wrap up as many trials as the day, the day would allow. 
So a kangaroo court ignores all standards of law and justice. Uh, a kangaroo court carries little or no standing in the territory in which it resides. And the term is just held to apply to a court that intentionally disregards all legal and all ethical and all legitimate judicial authority that it's supposed to mandate. So Jesus stood before a kangaroo court and we're going to look at six, not one trial, but there were six kangaroo trials that he stood before. So we're going to have to develop a timeline. And so uh, I want us to look at this timeline. So just going back to Thursday, the Passover meal, which was yesterday, the Passover meal occurred about six o'clock PM. So before we do that, let's talk a little bit about what a Jewish 24 hour day is. So our 24 hours is from midnight to midnight, but the Jewish 24 hour day of the Bible days was from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. was an actual day, 24 hour day. And then the day itself was divided into hours beginning at 6 a.m. in the morning. So from 6 to 7 a.m. in the morning was the first hour. From 7 to 8 a.m. in the morning was the second hour. From 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. was the third hour of the day. So the days were divided into hours. So going back, looking at Thursday, Thursday evening at 6 p.m., the Passover meal, the disciples participated in the Passover meal about 6 o'clock p.m. And then they left the uh, place, the upper room where the meal was prepared, and they went to the Mount of Olives into a garden there, the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was around midnight. So the day is starting to change in, in actuality, one minute after midnight, that's Friday morning for us. So around uh, midnight, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's going through what was called the passion. He's uh, looking at the cup, the cup of sorrows that was before him and asking the father if possible to please let this cup pass from him. Jesus knew what was ahead of him and he was grieving and he was sorrowful in anticipating the agonizing pain that was before him. Around one o'clock in the morning, Judas Iscariot carried out his mission and his plan, bringing guards and soldiers to arrest Jesus. So that puts us into where we're going to begin which is John chapter 18, John chapter 18, verse 12. So we're going to look at the six kangaroo trials and putting them into the context of the time parameters. So now it's about two o'clock in the morning on Friday morning, two o'clock on Friday morning, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns, torch, and weapons. Judas, therefore, knowing that all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, 
whom are Jesus said, who are you seeking? So this is the account right before his arrest. They came with Judas, with the soldiers came. Jesus asked, who were they seeking? And they said, Jesus, you, <laughs> Jesus, and they arrested him. And the disciples left, the disciples scattered. So we pick up in chapter 12 uh, or chapter 18, verse 12. It says, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Annas was not the high priest, he was the ex-high priest, he was the former high priest, and his daughter married Caiaphas, who was the present high priest. So they took Jesus to him first, to his home. Now it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So there was another disciple there. History tells us that it was the apostle John who was known by Caiaphas and he was able to get Peter into the courtyard of the high priest's home. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So there we, what follows is the account of the servant girl who recognized Jesus, who recognized Peter and said, you were one of them. And Peter denies it. Verse 19, the high priest, again, talking about Annas, asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered and said to him, I spoke openly to the world. I also taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he has said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Verse 23. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? So this is the first trial of Jesus in the house of Annas, the former high priest. Okay, so let us go to now Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start at verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all of the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent 
And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I said to you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And the others struck him with the palm of their hand saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So these first three trials, the first one in front of Annas, the former high, our former high priest, and now the Caiaphas, the present high priest. And now we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. Please note the witnesses, the false witnesses that they brought to testify against him. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So as I started or stated in the beginning, before we got started, I said that I call these the kangaroo trials because of the expediency that they were pushing Jesus through. And we're going to look at how not only were these, as I call kangaroo trials, and they were quickly trying to get him to the punishment and the penalty, but they also broke all of their own laws. So let's look at why these trials were illegal. Now, the first three trials, when he stood before Annas and stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the first three trials were uh, religious trials. They were religious in nature. And the accusation was blasphemy because they said that he was claiming to be God or the son of God. But a charge of blasphemy would mean nothing to the Roman government. They worshiped many gods as a people and as a culture. So blasphemy would not mean anything to them. So they needed to bring him before the Roman government leaders. And in doing so, they changed the charge, which was illegal, and changed the charge to an accusation of treason and labeled Jesus an insurrectionist, which we're going to look at that when we get to the next three trials. So these first three trials were religious in nature. So a trial was never to be held at night. That was the first Ill illegality. A trial was never to be held at night. 
But yet these first two trials were held at night. And then when he stood before the Sanhedrin, it was about six o'clock on Friday morning. So day, day had broken. Then the accuser was allowed to have an attorney to speak on his behalf, but Jesus never had a defense attorney. The accuser could not be declared guilty. This is number three without reputable witnesses. Notice it says that the witnesses that was called to testify against him, they could not agree even then their accounts about what he said and what he did. So they were irreputable witnesses. They were witnesses that the council themselves and the religious leaders themselves had bribed to be false witnesses, to bring false accusations against Jesus. So these were false witnesses. Next, Jesus was declared guilty before he was even proven guilty. So the Jewish court could not bear or hear a testimony regarding a capital crime during the hours of darkness. So here is another illegality. This is what the language of the code read. The members of the court may not alertly and intelligently hear the testimony against the accused during darkness. Did the men who tried Jesus know this? Of course they knew this. Again, it was a plot. Another illegal detail was that in a capital crime case, they were not permitted to give an immediate verdict. They were to adjourn, adjourn the meeting, go home for two or three days, and in the language of the code, they were to eat light food, drink light wines, sleep well, and once again return and hear the testimony against the accused. Then and only then could they vote. Another illegality. The code required that the Sanhedrin must vote one person at a time and that the youngest members must vote first, so they would not be influenced by the older. But in Jesus's trial, standing before the Sanhedrin, they all agreed that he was guilty based on what they professed that he was saying. And they quickly and emotionally came up with a verdict. And they said, you heard for yourselves out of his own mouth. So now let's go to the fourth trial. Let's go back to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, when we read the accounts, Jesus didn't say that they were not to pay taxes to Caesar. Remember when the uh, Herodians and the Pharisees posed that question to him, who should we pay taxes to? He asked them to bring out a coin that had the emblem of Caesar on it. And they said, Who's, he said, whose face is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And then Jesus responded, render to Caesar what, Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So they were lying, coming up again with false accusations and false witnesses against him. So Pilate asked him and saying, are you the king of Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. It's as if Pilate didn't really believe 
what they were trying to say about Jesus. Now, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at that time. He was chosen to oversee the province of Rome, which it belonged to Rome, and he was directly under the headship of Tiberius, who was the Caesar, the imperial emperor, emperor of the Roman Empire at that day. Now, normally Pilate resided in his comfortable home, but this particular time he had his place in Jerusalem. Now, history tells us that Pilate was an anti-Semitic Gentile, he, you know, pure Roman. He was out for Jewish blood. He was uh, determined to stamp the Jewish people into the ground of if all possible to keep, keep close reins on them by all means. He ran a tight ship, but he also uh, was not favorable <laughs> when it came to the Roman government because he stirred the Jewish people up. So he caused a lot of conflict and he caused a lot of uh, frustration for the Roman government as it related to the Jewish people. And he kept conflict and confrontations going on. But nonetheless, he understood that the Jews were jealous of Jesus and they were just trying to get him to do their dirty work because according to their laws, they could not condemn a man to death. Only the Roman government to, could do that under their jurisdiction. So Pilate said, I find no fault in this man, but they were the more fierce saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to his place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So here we are. It's about seven o'clock in the morning and his first interrogation with Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and now he's being moved to Herod, who was the governor of Galilee. Herod was from the family of the infamous Herod. He was the one who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist, this same Herod. So he was familiar with Jesus. He was familiar with the things that Jesus was doing. And in fact, there was a time when he wanted to get an audience with Jesus, perhaps to see him perform some of his magical tricks as he thought they, them to be. But he never got an audience with Jesus until now. So let's look at verse eight. Luke 23, verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him. And he had hoped to see him do some miracles, perhaps. Hmm. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently, vehemently, vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for before that they had been at enmity with each other. Herod and Pilate became friends. Remember, we talked before about how common enemies or enemies who are hostile against each other can have common ground 
in one person that they both are enemies and against. And Herod and Pilate were enemies against one another, but they had something in common now. They both had Jesus in custody and they both wanted to see him get what they thought was deserving of him. So Pilate actually thought that, okay, I'm getting my hands off of this. I understand and I know what's going on with the Jews. They're jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. They want me to do it for him. Okay, my, I'm finished with this. He's going over to Herod. Herod is going to take care of it. Herod's been wanting to see him. I know Herod's reputation. You know, he's going to make sure that this thing is taken care of. But Herod turned the tables on Pilate and sent him back. Verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. So now the tables have turned and Jesus is back in the presence of of Pilate. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. I love the different gospel accounts of the trial of Jesus and we're looking at our timeline and we want to stay uh, with our timeline. That'll help us to keep up with what's going on. So we're in Matthew chapter 27 and we're going to start at verse 11. So again, it's about eight o'clock in the morning. Jesus's second trial in front of Herod. It says, when he stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of Jews? You're still asking him this question. So Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Jesus didn't say a word. The scripture tells us that he was as silent as a lamb before his shearers. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had them at that time, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him. See, Pilate understood the motive behind the religious leaders and why they had sent him to Jesus in the first place sent Jesus to him in the first place. And he wasn't having any of it. He really was trying not to cause any more problems than he had already caused in the past. He was still trying to make sure that he remained in the good graces of the Roman government. But the chief priests and the elders, oh, let's go back up to verse 18. I'm sorry. For he knew because of envy, they had delivered him. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Here was a warning that 
Pilate's wife, she dreamt about Jesus. She called him a just man. And Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He was a seasoned leader, a seasoned soldier, a seasoned um, official, government official. He'd seen cases before. He had condemned people before. He knew a condemned man and a guilty man when he saw one, but he did not see any guilt in Jesus. So here his wife was warning him, do not have anything to do with this man. I've been dreaming about him. I've seen him in a dream. He is a just man. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. In other accounts, it said that they actually egged the uh, the, the, the multitudes on. They probably had people that were planted within the multitude that were crying out for the blood of Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was an insurrectionist and that was his charge. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of treason. He was guilty of insurrection and he was, you know, held in prison. And I believe that probably of the three crosses that had been set up, one of those was reserved for Barabbas. And it was interesting, or it is interesting that the religious leaders were crying out for the blood of an innocent man and they were willing to release a guilty man, a murderer, as it were, in Jesus's place. They were willing to let him be released instead of Jesus. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. Mind you, some of these people in this crowd were the same people who on Palm Sunday were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And now some of these people were hollowing, crucify him, crying out for his death. We have to be concerned about and cautious about those who one minute they are cheering us on and one minute they are for us and they said we will never be against you but then in another time in another season they are the very ones who would stab us in the back jesus was a man truly acquainted with griefs and sorrows and as we said earlier in spite of all of this this was his plan this was his purpose this was destiny he did everything he withstood everything he faced everything willingly and he did it for you and he did it for me. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all of the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. They were crying out that you can be innocent will be guilty and our children will be guilty for the condemnation and the punishment and the death of this unjust man as they saw Jesus as being. 
Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In the other accounts, the gospel accounts of Matthew, uh, of, of Mark, Luke, and John, we read about the whipping or the scourging of Jesus. Now, the Romans were very creative as it related to punishment. They had the most cruelest forms of punishment that they would inflict upon people. So one of them was the use of what was called a cat of nine tails. And this was a whip that was made with strips of leather. And at the end of the leather were pieces of rock or jagged glass or metal. And the flogger would flog the back of the victim. And every time that whip or that those chunks of rock and metal would hit the flesh, it would rip the flesh off of the body. And this is what Jesus was whipped with, the cat of nine tails. And scripture tells us that he was whipped 39 times. But Isaiah tells us that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus received 39 stripes. And each one of those stripes was for a sickness, for a disease, so that you and I could be healed. We often forget about that, and many don't know about the whipping post. We know about the cross, but the whipping post, those bloody stripes that Jesus received were just as important and are just as important for our total salvation, our total healing, and our total restoration. So let's continue. In chapter Matthew 27, looking at verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! The satirical and the cynical display of honor to a king that the Roman soldiers display to Jesus since he supposedly is a king, let's honor him as a king. So they took him his clothes off. Another thing that I want to mention is that, you know, when we see the pictures of Jesus on the cross, for example, he has a loincloth on his clothes on, but Jesus was naked and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but they stripped him of all of his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him and they made a crown of thorns and they put the thorns on his head. And mind you, they didn't gently put the crown of thorns on his head. They forcefully, I'm sure, pushed the crown of thorns down on his temple, piercing his skull. And they bowed their knee and they hit him on the head with a reed that they used supposedly as his scepter. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30 said, Then they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put on his clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. I don't want us to not look at the severity of the treatment that Jesus faced even before he went to the cross. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he was beaten and he was bruised, so much so that his face was unrecognizable. 
when we read other accounts of the Gospels, it said that they were pulling his beard out. Can you imagine your beard being, being pulled out of your face, chunks of flesh being pulled out, being beat and slapped and spit on? Total humiliation, total disrespect, torment, pain. But remember, Jesus did this willingly. He did it for you and he did it for me. I don't want us to go too fast because we are getting ready to come to the epitome of this day on Friday. But I had to pause here in thinking about the agony and the pain that he was already experiencing before he had even gotten to the cross. Verse 32. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that comes from Psalms chapter 22, verse 18. The fulfillment of prophecy that they divided Jesus' clothes, but the robe was of one piece. And I remember years ago, and it, it usually was about this time that one of my favorite movies would come on called The Robe, an excellent, an excellent biblical depiction, but the robe was of one piece. And so they cast lots for that. But notice how Jesus, they enlisted a man, Siren, by the name of Simon, who helped to carry his cross for him. Jesus tells us to bear our own crosses. He bared his and he had someone to help him, but he also asks us to bear our cross. Whatever we may be going through, there are times when we have to bear our own cross. Sitting down, verse 36, they kept watch over him there and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Of the two robbers that were on either side of him, we read in another account of the Gospels how the one reviled him, but the other said, Lord, remember me in this day when you come into paradise, remember me. And Jesus said, this day you will come into paradise with me. That man had never been into a church. He had never been into a temple. He simply accepted and acknowledged Jesus as being the Christ, the son of God that he was. And he asked him in so many words to forgive me of our sins, his sins. And that's all we have to do. 
is just to trust and acknowledge Jesus as being who he is and ask him to forgive us of our sins. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, so when we were talking about our hours, we can go back and look at from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. So now it's about 12 noon, which is the sixth hour. It was nine o'clock as Jesus was nine o'clock in the morning and uh, as Jesus was on the road called the Via Dolorosa, which is the means the way of sorrow. So it was about nine o'clock in the morning when he was on his way on that road, that fateful road to Golgotha. And now it's about noon. And the scripture tells us here that it was darkness from noon, which was the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which was three o'clock. Darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus, when he had cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. I love the account where he says, Father, I commend my spirit to you. I remember a time back when I was talking to a person about the death of Jesus. They said they killed him. They murdered him. But Jesus laid his life down. He was following the prophecy. He was fulfilling what was already ordained and what was spoken for him. He said, for this purpose, I came. He said, I laid my life down. No man take it from me. I willingly laid my life down for you. And he laid his life down for me. So now it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And it says in verse 51 that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And many women, verse 55, who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So the women who ministered to Jesus were there witnessing his death on the cross. And his mother was there. In other accounts, we read that Mary was there. In fact, in the account of John, which is one of my familiar or my favorite accounts of that, Jesus looks from the cross right before he gives up his spirit and looks at the apostle John and said, or says to his mother, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And I love how even in Jesus's last moments, he was thinking about his mother. Verse 57, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. 
So we close with the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus in the tomb. Uh, he's being watched over by Mary Magdalene and some of the other women on the opposite side of the tomb, watching everything that's going on. An eventful day, a painful day, a sorrowful day on the one hand, but a powerful day, a hopeful day on the other. The kangaroo trials, the accusations, the false witnesses, the hatred, the plot and plan and scheme to destroy an innocent man. Jesus was acquainted with sorrows and griefs. He experienced everything in the three or no, 33 years that he lived on the earth. He experienced everything that any person, even today, would go through and experience. He was rejected. He was despised. He was wrongly accused, falsely accused. He was forsaken, neglected, betrayed. But remember, he did this willingly. He subjected himself to it for you, and he subjected himself to it for I. Where God is concerned, there's never a period at the sentence, at the end of a sentence. Now, it looks like this is the end, but it's not the end. It's only a comma. And we're going to continue with our journey on tomorrow. Let's pray. Awesome Father and awesome God, we are filled with thoughts about everything that your son encountered. I'm getting full just thinking about the terrible price that he paid, but everything that he endured even before he went to the cross. He went to the whipping posts and received 39 stripes so that I could be healed that lupus could be healed, that cancer could be healed. He received those stripes and they are still working today. There's so much sick sickness in the earth realm today. Many who are ill and sick, many who are dying. But Lord, you bore our sicknesses and you bore our diseases in your own body and with your stripes we are healed. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you subjected yourself to the most cruelest punishment ever devised by man. And you allowed them to put you on the cross and you stayed on the cross. You could have come down. You could have asked a band of angels to remove you, but you stayed there. You stretched your arms out for me. You stretched your arms out for us. You said, for this cause I was born, that I might die. We thank you, Lord, that this enables us to, to bear our own crosses. Each one of us has a cross that we are perhaps bearing right now with so many deaths around us, so many deaths to come, so many things that have, are going on even now in our own personal lives. There are many crosses to bear, the cross of a, a marriage, a divorce, a separation, the cross of a wayward child, the cross of 
pain and, and a sickness and a disease that we've been carrying for a long time. But Lord, you bear your cross, so we are able to bear ours. You suffered, and so we are able to suffer as well. You are our Lord and Savior. You led by example. We thank you that in this time of Passover, and now in this time, in this day of Good Friday, that the end is coming, but it's really not the end, it's the beginning. Help us to keep our eyes peeled to your truth and the truth of your word. Help us to look past the grave as we look for resurrection and new life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to A Victorious Life is Yours. Each week, I will cheer you on to cross your finish lines of victory. You can find me on social media and on my website, reneemariejones.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and comment. Until the next time, Victorious Ones.